Hi, I'm Dan Webster, field critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public Radio. Welcome to Movies 101, that show that knows itself as well as the three of us know ourselves. That hasn't always been the case, though, especially when one of us says something that makes the others roll their eyes. Like when I gave three stars to the 1990 Tony Scott film Days of Thunder. Hey, mistakes were made. Getting to know someone is one theme of this week's show, as we will be looking at two movies, one the biopic Priscilla, the other the narrative drama Anatomy of a Fall, each of which explores the makeup and motivations of its central characters. Let's begin with a trek back to 1959, when a young girl is introduced to one of the most celebrated singers of the 20th century. That singer, of course, is Elvis Presley, and the girl is the 14-year-old Priscilla Ann Beaulieu, who eventually was to become his wife. But at the time, the two were in Germany, where the 24-year-old Elvis was stationed during his two-year army stint, and Priscilla was in the ninth grade and living with her mother and stepfather. We see that first meeting played out in the Sofia Coppola written and directed film titled Simply Priscilla, which is based on the 1985 memoir Elvis and Me, the true story of the love between Priscilla Presley and the king of rock and roll. Adapted from the book, which Priscilla wrote with Sandra Harmon, Coppola's film follows the ups and eventually downs of the courtship and marriage. It keys on the transitions that Priscilla undergoes, some forced on her by Elvis, others brought about through her own gradual maturation. Coppola employs a cast comprised mostly of newcomers to tell her story, most notably the talented Kaylee Spani as Priscilla and the slightly more experienced Australian actor Jacob Elordi as Elvis. Whatever qualities the film possesses, though, and there are several, Elvis superfans aren't likely to be thrilled as the singer's portrayal is a direct contrast to that emphasized in Baz Luhrmann's flashy 2022 effort titled Simply Elvis, which won Austin Butler a Best Actor Oscar nomination. Well, certainly seeing Elvis and Priscilla a year and some change back to back. Uh, I mean, it really is a study in contrast, especially because Priscilla is barely a character in the Lorman film. She kind of shows up near the beginning and then at the end to divorce him and is mostly absent, it kind of seems. The Lorman film also mostly portrayed Elvis as a victim of an oppressive manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who's referred to in passing in this movie. And Parker, the movie argues, sort of took advantage of his talents and plied him with drugs, whereas Coppola's film kind of shows Elvis as both equal parts aloof and passionate in this relationship, and as a man who really maintained the impression of domesticity without ever really fully embracing domesticity. And of course, both of those things can be true. And of course, this also deals with something that the Lurman film really kind of glides past, which is that Elvis began courting Priscilla when she was only 14 Mm -hmm. and he was 24. And the movie really puts a, a fine point on that. But as a film, Priscilla is my favorite Coppola film in a really long time. And I think you can look at it as something of a spiritual sequel to her 2006 film, Marie Antoinette. They have a lot in common. And both movies are about these young women in history who were brought into these hermetically sealed environments of wealth and glamour. They were really unprepared for public scrutiny, even though they were the subject of it. They were kind of trapped in these marriages with men who were emotionally distant, who were temperamental. Of course, the difference is that Priscilla eventually escaped and Marie Antoinette obviously did not. But both movies are about the aesthetics of fame and the aesthetics of fortune. And Coppola has sometimes been knocked 
for only being interested in aesthetics. But I think in her films, aesthetics really reflect the interiorities of the characters and certainly the changes that Priscilla goes through here as depicted in sort of her style and the way she carries herself is, you know, it speaks volumes in ways that the dialogue in the movie doesn't necessarily do. And again, you mentioned the performances in Priscilla, Kaylee Spanny and Jacob Elordi. I'm not really familiar with either of them. I know Alordi is on uh, Euphoria, Euphoria, which I've never watched. I know he's going to be in Saltburn in a couple weeks, so he's kind of on the up and up. I thought they were both terrific in this movie and in roles that are so inherently challenging. I mean, we were talking about Austin Butler when Elvis came out, and I thought he was good in Elvis, but I also thought – And I think I even said it on the show. Well, you know, lots of people have portrayed Elvis as a performer over the years. Is it really that special? (laughs) I mean, you can go to Vegas any day of the week and see a really good Elvis impersonation. I think having to portray Elvis in just his daily life lounging around Graceland is maybe even more of a challenge because you have to bring so much more interpretation to it. So I really appreciated both of their performances. I really appreciated this movie. So yeah, I think Priscilla is very good and I think perfectly in keeping with so many of the themes that Sofia Coppola has tackled throughout her career. I agree totally. And I thought the Marie Antoinette reference was probably the best one. But of course, we can think of Lost in Translation and other things. The virgin suicides as well. That deal with women and sort of their maturation process and so forth. And I liked the way this started. We're sort of gradually introduced to what was happening in Priscilla to the lives of our characters and so forth. And I think, and Dan and I had talked about this, I mean, I think the makeup alone should be an award-winning aspect of this production because we see her go from being a very believable 14-year-old girl to a young woman Mm -hmm. throughout the course of this film. And so I thought Kaylee Spanny was amazing, and I was not familiar with her at all. I think that the fact that we had the Baz Luhrmann film from last year, and we still have some of those images in our minds of Austin Butler in particular, I think in some ways that set the stage for this. So I think not that they're companion pieces exactly, but they are sort of flip sides to the same story. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that about it. Um, and almost diametrically opposed styles, Correct. Over the top versus sort of uh, laid back and interiorly focused and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to point out. Coppola's style. I mean, she has a very specific way of making movies and you could call it controlled, careful, whatever you want. You know, there's just not going to be any really high moments, any real low moments. It's just the movies go along at a certain pace. And I'm not sure whether it's where we saw it. We saw it at AMC. But the colors looked muted and slightly on the dark side. And I don't know whether that was intentional um, because that certainly is different than, say, what happened in Lost in Translation. It might have been more the virgin suicides early on where everything seemed gauzy and slightly out of focus. Dreamlike almost. Right, exactly. But I can't say enough for the two performances. I agree with both of you. I think that Kaylee Spanny, at the very beginning, as you say, she looked exactly like a 14-year-old. And as she goes on, that makeup 
made her look almost unrecognizable. And the hair gets it, taller it, it gets and more. Taller. Which and equalized it, the it, height difference between the two and of then them. By the, the time, Aquanet comes out. Exactly. And then by the time she leaves, it's softer and she mm-hmm. looks much more mature. She looks like a 20-something woman that Priscilla was when she did leave the marriage. Going back to the visual look of Priscilla and the cinematography, Philip Lassord, Philippe Lassord shot this movie. I think the kind of muted nature of the visuals, I think it is deliberate. Gauzy, I think, is a great way of describing it. But there are these scenes where, for instance, Elvis and his entourage, Priscilla's always kind of tagging along with them. There's a scene where they're all at, it looks almost like an abandoned roller rink, but they probably rented it out so Elvis could have a night out or something. And all the lights are really low. It's both beautiful but kind of menacing in a certain way. I also just thought that the way that the film is shot in terms of its locations, because Priscilla is basically going from this kind of boxy military housing where she's living with her mom and her stepfather to the confines of Graceland, which famously is not as big as you think it actually is. You know, so she's kind of enclosed all the way through this movie. And then I also want to talk about the soundtrack because Sofia Coppola is known for her soundtracks. She couldn't use any actual Elvis music. The estate wouldn't grant her the rights, but I think she finds some really clever workarounds with songs from that era. But she also throws in those anachronistic needle drops like the Ramones covering the Ronettes opens this movie and I knew I was into this right away. You've got some Dolly <laughs> this Parton This was the soundtrack with your name all uh, over it. Yeah, I they, loved the sound all, of it. They all made a commentary. I mean, Absolutely. like the, the Dolly yeah, yeah. Parton which At is the not end. the most famous cover of that song. Well, it's it was the, written it, Houston, it, it, but it is the original. Version, yes. And in my mind, the best. But yeah. it's really appropriate and, at and the moment. And it's on the nose, but it somehow still works. I agree. Uh, and I don't think we can stress enough When you look at Elvis, which is a big, expansive, glossy epic, this is a very small film in a lot of ways. Yes. And that's what I appreciated about it. Well, and we know that post-Golden Globes, Lisa Marie Presley died. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And she was the prime executor of the estate and so forth. And so she was not in favor of this portrayal of her dad. Right. So I don't know if the whole conversation would have played out differently if she had been more involved because we know that there was that resolution of the estate between Priscilla Presley and her granddaughter, Riley Keough. And I think that the conversation allows us to sort of look at this for what it is without so much external chatter that might have existed. Getting back to my whole point about not knowing someone, it's interesting that you can see a person in many different ways, depending on your perspective. So the people who wrote this book, Priscilla, had a very different view of Elvis than her daughter did. And it's not like... Like, you know, there is nuance here. It's not like he's exactly. portrayed as, a, as no. some kind no, no, of monster no, 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 or anything. No, no. But yeah. we don't really see him performing. We see that only right. sort of yes. from afar. And... He has this legendary kind right. of quality to it. Which him. is yeah. an argument. Do it as a double feature with Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. At any rate, that was our discussion of Sofia Coppola's film Priscilla. This is Movies 101, and it's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcasts of Movies 101 by going online at SpokanePublicRadio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to look at Anatomy of a Fall. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. Wherever life takes you, take Spokane Public Radio with you. You can stream your favorite public radio station on your smartphone, computer, smart speaker, or any mobile device. Visit spokanepublicradio.org and click Listen Live. Pick KPBX, KSFC, or KPBZ and start listening. Or just ask your Amazon Echo or Google Home smart speaker to play Spokane Public Radio. Listen live to Spokane Public Radio at work, home, or wherever you go.
And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I discuss Sofia Coppola's film Priscilla. Let's now turn to the French courtroom study, Anatomy of a Fall. Of course, French filmmaker Justine Trier's film takes place in settings other than just a courtroom, and it deals with other issues than just a suspicious death. German actress Sandra Huller plays Sandra, a woman who is suspected of murdering her husband, Samuel, played by Samuel Thies, whose death was caused by a fall from an upper story of the mountain home they've been renting. As it turns out, the marriage has been strained both from their professional struggles, she's a successful novelist, he's a struggling writer, and from responsibility over the accident that caused their 11-year-old son, Danielle, played by Milo Machado Granet, to become partially blind. While Trier never does give a sure answer as to who did what, the trial scenes are powerful, especially the give and take between Huller and the prosecutor played by Antoine Reinhardt's. In any event, the result was good enough for the film to win the Palme d'Or, the top award at last May's Cannes Film Festival. Anatomy of a Fall is such an intriguing mix of different genres, at least to my way of thinking. So first of all, it's a foreign language film. You know, it's set in this beautiful vista in the French Alps. It is focused on this relationship between a woman and her husband and their child, who, as Dan mentioned, has suffered a visual impairment as a result of a childhood accident. And there's some guilt and responsibility on the part of both parents, but especially dad, for Daniel's current situation. There's the cutest dog in the world um, who inhabits this particular residence. And we are introduced to this family in sort of an interesting way as well. We find out that Sandra, who is a famous author in her own right, is being interviewed, you know, by a younger journalist. And, you know, you don't really know what's happening between them because there's a little bit of sexual tension. And then all of a sudden this like blaring music, 50 Cent's Pimp, P-I-M-P, right, comes into our hearing space as well as these particular characters. And we don't know what's going on. And the next thing we know, pretty rapidly thereafter, The husband, Samuel, is lying in the snow, bleeding from the head, obviously dead, his body to be discovered by the child. And this is not really a police procedural in a classic sense, because those of you who watch police procedurals from France know that their whole investigative system and approach is different. But it does become ultimately a courtroom procedural. In between... We're trying to get a handle about what happened, and we don't know. And we are thinking, oh, there's going to be a big reveal at some point about how this played out. Because the question is, was this an accident in Anatomy of a Fall? And I think that title is perfect. I don't know what its title is in French, but the English version is perfect. Because they are trying to unpack what occurred. And we think that as a result of this trial, we're going to get to the truth. And it's difficult to talk about this film without sort of 
focusing on the character of Sandra because she's not a likable character. She's German. Her husband is French. This is all taking place in France. Part of our challenge here is everyone uses English as a common language, even in some of the courtroom portrayals. And that sort of adds to the mystery and the overlay of what transpired, because we don't know what's due to cultural differences and so forth, because Sandra's very stoic throughout this process. I mean, occasionally she smiles, especially when she's with her lawyer, who's an old friend. But we can't figure out what's going on with her. And I think that we've seen this in public trial settings where people did not behave in ways that we thought they should. And I'm thinking specifically of Amanda Knox for different reasons. And so we just maybe assume that she's guilty because she doesn't seem to have the type of remorse Etc. that we expect. Right. Amanda Knox being the young Seattle uh, person who was accused of murder in Italy all those years ago. You know, you talk about Sandra being stoic, and I agree, but not unbelievably so. And in her give and take with the prosecutor, she comes across as totally human, Someone who's it helps in control. The prosecutors, uh, a, oh, he's yeah. a slimy guy, yeah. but he's an effective prosecutor. But I didn't dislike Sandra. I don't know that we ever really get to know her, but I didn't think that she was unlikable. Well, but also being in that position, she's damned if she does, damned if she doesn't. Exactly. If she shows exactly. too much emotion, you know, she's going to be read a certain way. If she doesn't show enough emotion, she's read another way. Right. But yeah, I mean, the central question of Anatomy of a Fall is, I'm going to kind of misquote an old Richard Thompson song, but it's, did he jump or was he pushed? I mean, that's the question. And the whole movie is sort of this Rorschach test for the viewers. So you look at this body in the snow. Do you see a guy who's like this tortured soul who deliberately Because we do see some flashbacks yep, of yep. their time together. We, we learn about both of them and not flattering things really about either of them. Or do you see someone who was a murder victim, essentially? And when you see Sandra... On the stand later, do you see someone who's been wrongfully accused or is she a master manipulator? And that's sort of the question that we're asking ourselves. And that's the question that her son asks also, which is a key part to Anatomy of a Fall. And, And the central scene in the movie is this argument that happens in flashback that the husband just happened to be recording. And we see it play out, the two actors playing it out. But Trier, the filmmaker, is very canny in when she decides to cut away from the footage so that all we hear is the audio, and it just adds to that question. I do think that the movie becomes less intriguing and enigmatic as it goes, as it settles into the rhythms of a more standard courtroom drama. I think when you compare it to something like St. Omer, which came out a while ago and is another movie about the French court system. And also, like, I have so many questions about the French court system after watching both of these movies because it does kind of seem like... We'll turn uh, you on to Spiral, which is a police procedural. Okay, thank you. I'll, and a gonna, procedural. I'll get your list after this. But I thought that movie was a lot more challenging, I think mainly because the mystery wasn't, did the person do it, but why did the person Correct. do it? And I guess I just found that more... Um, compelling kind in of some haunting ways. and compelling, whereas this one, I think the last... 30 minutes are a bit narratively tidy for Perhaps, me. And, but I, and I think the whole central question of did she do it or not, I think the movie kind of 
answers it in a way that I didn't find all that satisfying. Well, and the other relationship in this movie we haven't talked about. So this woman is on trial, but she still has this kid who has a visual impairment, um, and he has his adorable dog, Snoop, who <laughs> definitely deserves a Best Actor Award oh, for yeah. his role in this film. <laughs> if there is a, yeah, no animals said the pump, were harmed or Yeah, or right, exactly. We need to movie. say that. Yeah. But there's also a relationship between Daniel, who, you know, there's a dilemma for the court. Should they allow the mom and the son to spend time together in view of the fact that he has a witness part of at least the aftermath of what transpired? Right, exactly. And so he has this guardian, like a guardian ad litem sort of person who actually lives with them. And so we start to see their relationship. And they have to speak only in French. Right, right, mm-hmm. according to the court's directive. Right. Yes. Uh, and so when you're sort of put off by the last 30 minutes, I liked that and aspect so of the relationship yeah. because it did seem realistic. But as you said, I got the impression that X happened, but other people may have gotten the impression that Y occurred. I I wanted the movie maybe to give me a couple more things that would really nag at me as I left the theater. Like I wanted a couple more lines of dialogue that maybe added even more ambiguity to the case because the first half of this movie I found completely absorbing and then just a little less absorbing, even though I think Sandra Hewler, who's the star of this, is unbelievable in this film. No, I think she, really she was good. in that movie, Tony Erdman, a few years ago. Right, right. She's in The Zone of Interest, the Jonathan Glazer film coming out. She's amazing in this. Yeah. I didn't have the problem that you two seem to have with a woman's guilt or innocence because to me, the question wasn't, did she do it or did she not do it, is given that situation, what would any of us do? I mean, and if she did do it, was she justified? You know, I think that the movie begs those kinds of questions. And I think going back to the question of language, I think language is very important in this film because ultimately oh, when yeah. it comes down to it, she's a German woman in a French court and who can't speak French very well and has to revert to English. That can't make her look sympathetic under anybody's watch. At any rate, I think that ultimately this is a Palme d'Or winning film. It's an amazing film by whatever standard you want to look at it. So... That was our view of Anatomy of a Fall. This is Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster. And earlier in the show, Nathan Weinbinder and Mary Pat Truthart and I discussed Priscilla, Sophia Coppola's biopic of Priscilla Presley. Let's take this moment to thank Cassie Fox for both producing and engineering the show. We thank you to our loyal listeners. We invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dialed when we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the late, great Oscar Wilde. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.